Lord, this morning before we climb into the word together as a people, I want to lift up a few things specifically. I want to pray for another pastor and his family and for another church. I want to pray specifically for Paul Blue and his family and for family fellowship. Lord, first I want to pray for Paul that you would guard his heart from just doing a job and just getting it done each week, but that it, his journey as first as a husband and secondly as a father and third as a pastor would be fueled by worship, that each week you would arrest him with the good news and the marvel and wonder that we have been offered and extended a Sabbath rest in you and that we have been invited into a family. I pray that Paul is uh, weakly renewed in that. I pray that you will make him faithful in what he's doing as first as husband, second as father, and third as, pa as pastor. And Lord, that you'll use that work to put the gospel on display uh, as he ministers to his wife and loves her as Christ loved the church. That he shows his kids what that looks like in a relentless, consistent love for his mom or for their mom. That the kids will know what the gospel looks like. It'll be familiar. And when he stands and delivers through preaching each week, that it won't be an inconsistent message with what they see pursued at home. I pray that you would use the time that he does stand and deliver through teaching and preaching to equip the saints for the work of service. And that the work of family fellowship would be in keeping with the work of Crosspoint Fellowship and the other churches in our community. That it would not be about making our own name great. That would it not be about making ourselves famous or renowned. That would it not be about building ourselves up, but it would be about participating in growing an invisible kingdom. And about making your name great. And that truly the churches in this community could work together toward that endeavor that you would guard us all from a spirit of competition, that we would truly want great things in each other and for each other, for your namesake and for your glory. Lord, I pray as a result of that, that those in this community that don't know you will see a family of believers gathering in separate houses, church buildings, who have a consistent pursuit and have a humility that's otherworldly and have an aroma and a brightness and a taste that's not like anything else they see. Lord, I pray that whatever context you give us for these things to be played out, whether it's in the neighborhood or whether it's just this morning, us lifting up another church, whether it's in a shared cubicle or whether we're actually at some point to partner together with another church, we pray that you will you will find us faithful, you'll find us responsive, you'll find us attentive to whatever that might be. Also, Lord, this morning I want to pray not for a specific official, but for a group of officials, a new city council that's, some are old, some are new, or that you would work out your plan through this council. We recognize that they are seated there only because you have ordained that and allowed that we pray that you would work them together to make for peace in this community. pray that you would guard them from any other influence other than doing what's right. 
Pray that you would give them a like-mindedness that's consistent with your will. And we pray for peace in this community so the gospel can be furthered and enjoyed. Thankful that in some ways this sermon is metaphor of the sermon. And I'm thankful for an opportunity for this people to do the work of listening and the work of hearing and the work of heeding. Pray that you will work that in the next few minutes for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. As you're turning there, I'm going to give you a little disclaimer about the next three Sundays. And I don't know if disclaimer is the word, but that's what I'm going to say it is. The next three Sundays, well, the next two Sundays, after this Sunday, this sermon and the next two are so closely tied together, I was tempted to have like a marathon Sunday and do them all at once. Because it's that important that they are considered together. Now, I'm not going to do that. Okay, so exhale. But what I am going to do is I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to implore you to listen to next week's sermon and the, the Sunday after that. If you only get this sermon and you don't get part two and part three, you will be horribly off balance. And I'm not exaggerating. You'll be horribly off balance. If you only get this one and not the next two, you'll be horribly off balance. Now, the problem is next weekend is Memorial Day weekend. Is that right? Memorial Day. I get Labor Day, Memorial Day mixed up. Yes, Memorial Day. It's Memorial Day weekend, so some of you may have some travel planned, whatever. Hey, man, do that in faith. Knock yourself out. But listen to the message. Because if you don't, you're going to walk with a limb. You're going to be off balance. You're going to be out of sorts. Your car's going to pull to the right. It's going to be bad. I'm going to use every illustration I can think of. It's going to be a bad thing. Now, if you get this week and next week, and best of all, the week after that, where they, where this week and next week are brought together, you've got the full Monty, the full package right there. Your car's going to be going straight. You're going to be running. You're not going to be limping. It's going to be so good, okay? All right, so that's my encouragement for the next three weeks. Hebrews chapter 4, I'm going to sort of unpack this passage, this chapter, I'm going to point out a few pieces of furniture in the room, same thing we did last week, and then we're going to go sit in an area of the room and consider something this morning, dealing with specifically work. We're in the middle of a rest series, but this morning, in order to understand rest, we need to understand work. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 4. Give you a little bit of context. Chapter 3 and 4 are sort of a transition, or excuse me, they're sort of an appeal to a church who's sort of on the bubble in faith. This church is in the context, we think, likely in Rome, largely what we would call today a Messianic Jewish church. It looks as if this church has found following Christ really hard, likely in Rome, under the heavy hand of uh, Roman oppression, under the heavy hand of Jewish oppression, that they're considering becoming a synagogue. They're considering, and I'm saying that just uh, as sort of an illustration, they're considering going back to Judaism. 
They're considering bailing on Christ. And the appeal in chapter 3 is don't bail on Christ short of your inheritance, short of your promised land. He uses the imagery of what their ancient people, their ancient people would have gone through, ancient Israel, in going to the promised land. Don't stop somewhere in the wilderness or don't fall to disbelief somewhere in the wilderness and end up in a sandy grave because you didn't make it all the way to the promised land. So he uses chapter 3 to sort of warn them, don't bail or you'll miss out on the promised land. But he transitions in chapter 4 from warning to promise. The same message. Don't bail on Christ. If you continue, though, there's this sweet promise that's held out there for us of rest. Of wonderful rest. So chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, I'll share a couple of verses and then a few thoughts and a couple of verses and then a few thoughts until we make our way all the way through verse 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Therefore, ties chapters 3 and 4 together. It's one big appeal. Chapter 3, he uses one illustration. Chapter 4, he shifts gears to use another illustration or another metaphor to make the same point. Don't bail shy of the promised land. Don't bail shy of his rest. And this promise of rest is a durable promise. We considered that last week. This promise still stands. This promise remains. It is a durable promise. In verse 2, for preaching good news. It doesn't say preaching there, but that's what that word means in Greek. Preaching good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. If you have the ESV, there's a little note down in the bottom of your Bible. Another way to put that. It did not meet with faith in the hearers. The Hebrews preacher is writing to this church. He's saying, hey, our forefathers, the ancient Israelites, had good news preached to them as well. Their good news that was preached to them was a news of a promised land that was promised to their forefather, Abram. A land that flowed with milk and honey, with cisterns they didn't dig, with houses they didn't build. A wonderful promise, having spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. The good news was preached to them too, but they weren't united by faith to the hearers. And the result in the next verse is... For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The result there is there were a million sandy graves for those that did not enter the rest of the promised land. It's something that if you were an Israelite, likely here in the early church, you would have swallowed hard as you thought about your ancient forefathers. That, oh yeah, a million sandy graves. There's a lot at stake here. Believing and continuing, there's a lot at stake. For rest was not to be found by my forefathers, a faithless generation. And the result was a million sandy graves spread out over the course of 40 years in the wilderness. And then verses 3 through 5 continues now with a new metaphor. 
although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. That's the rest of verse 3. Now on into verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now he takes this image of going into the promised land and finding rest. And he introduces a whole new metaphor. And the metaphor now is of God's Sabbath rest. He's pointing back to God's creation week. Where in six days he created. And then what did he do on the seventh? He rested. He introduces a whole new metaphor that is ripe with some really, really beautiful imagery. Some really, really beautiful teaching. It opens up a whole new layer of insight into what's in store for those who continue with Christ. But it also opens up a whole new insight into what actually continuing means. When we go back and look at his creation week, that's what we're going to do this morning. What does it mean to continue? And then continuing on in verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, a million sandy graves. And again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long ago, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. He's pointing back there to say this promised land was not the rest that God was talking about ultimately. He's talking about rest there. But it was not the rest that he's talking about ultimately. That was shadow of the substance that's held out there for us. We have a whole new theology of rest that we can study when we consider promised land promises and Sabbath promises. And he's saying here that he's talking about something else All along, ultimately, the Sabbath that's in store for us. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's us. That's the Hebrews church. That's us. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That's what we're going to really be exploring next week. But let us therefore... Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Rest from our work still stands. A durable promise. Rest from our work still remains a durable promise, so don't quit shy of it. That's the whole point of chapter 4. Don't quit shy of it. Of the promise. That is the plain teaching of chapter 4. The plainest teaching of chapter 4. Last week was an exposition of chapter 4. But if you want to just get, okay, what's the point of chapter 4? This is the point. Don't quit midweek, Hebrews church. Because Saturday, or the Sabbath, is coming. Don't quit midweek. Keep working till the weekend. Work now, rest later. That's ultimately the plainest teaching of chapter 4. Keep working, rest later. Now, what I want to do in these next few minutes is I want us to consider together...
considering that we're building out this sort of this theology of rest in these last few weeks, this morning we're going to sort of engage a theology of work. In order to understand rest, we have to engage and consider work. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1. Likely not going to be anything real novel here, real eye-opening. We're sort of just grabbing something that we're going to need here in these next few minutes. We're just grabbing something we're going to need on the nature of work. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Absolute nothingness. God says, let there be light, and there was light, and that's the first day. God creates something. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and he separated the waters from the waters, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed. Each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And verse 13, that's the third day. Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons, for days, for years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so the fourth day. Verse 20, he says, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. Every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And that's the fifth day. Verse 24. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock. Creepy crawlies. Beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And he made them in verse 28, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And then at the end of chapter 1, there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This creation week that's likely so familiar to each of us, I don't want us to take it for granted. I want us to grab it because we're going to need it in a few minutes. We have to consider that the nature of God's work is a creative work. Duh. It seems like a duh, but it's going to be so important later. The nature of God's work is a creative work, and it's good. Every single one of these six days, except for one, he says it's some part in there, he says, and it was good. The only day that he doesn't say it's good is day two, and some people think that that's likely because he's going to undo it later in the flood. It was likely some sort of terrarium, you know, geranium, that may be a plant, a terrarium, the little thing that you... You know, you make in, in elementary school, you know, that has a plant in it. You put a little saran wrap thing on the top and terrarium. Yeah, okay. Thank you, Ginevra. Bailed me out. 
this greenhouse sort of environment where dinosaurs could flourish pre-flood, that that's the only day that he doesn't say it's good, likely because it's something that he later undoes. But the nature of the week, we have to say, is very creative, obviously, and it's very good, but that's his work. That's the kind of work that he does. And we have to, in order to understand his rest and our rest, we have to understand his work, which is going to imply lots about our work. Secondly, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. This tells us a little bit more about what God expects of man. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And then look over in chapter 3, verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden. This is post-fall, post-consequences of the fall. Sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Man was created for work before the fall, and nothing changed after the fall except for the nature of the work. But man still created for work. If you really looked at the rest of your Bible in light of just these foundational teachings where God worked and he created, and then he rested, and God made man for work, then you see the rest of our Bible is just one story after another of work. One who works or one who fails to work. Noah builds an ark and preaches. Heralds, he's a herald of righteousness, 2 Peter says. He's building an ark, some people think, for at least 75 years, possibly longer than that. That's work. Then there's Abram, later Abraham. There's Isaac, there's Jacob, who worked as ranchers. There's Joseph, who worked in Potiphar's house. There's Israel, a whole nation that's being born in the fiery furnace of affliction, working in Egypt. There's Moses, working in the Exodus. I'm going to take just a moment and just grab a few of the images of Moses in the Exodus. Look at Numbers chapter 11. I want you to see this because I want us to really engage Moses' work. Numbers chapter 11. You can jump in as you get there. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Like spontaneous combustion on the outlying parts of the camp because God's so angry over it. Then the people cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, like a vintage word there, wanton craving. It's a good word. And the people of Israel also wept and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, forgetting the fact that we were slaves. The meat we ate in Egypt cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up while we're free out here. And there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Cloudy with a chance of manna. It drops from the sky. Food from the sky. And we're just tired of it. 
Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance was like that of bedellium. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the midnight, the manna fell with it. Dinner from the sky. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, just hear work. These next few words. Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? You hear, burden. Did I conceive of this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden's too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Hear work in those words. It is work to lead God's people. You hear it in leadership right there. But it's also work to follow. The story in chapter 12 is a story of Miriam and Aaron bucking Moses' leadership. They say, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And the man Moses was very meek. He's the most followable guy on the face of the earth. More than any people who are on the face of the earth, this guy is the meekest. And he's got own family members bucking his leadership right there because it's hard work to follow too. It's hard work to lead, and it's hard work to follow. And you see work right here in this Exodus story. If you really read it, you see work all over the place. You see work preparing a Passover meal that you need to get right. Mind you, there's a lot at stake. You see work in spying out the promised land. You see work in building a tabernacle, a large part of what they were doing there in the wilderness. You see work picking up and moving every few days or every few weeks, however long it is, till the column or pillar of fire moves out to the next station. It's work. And it's work to lead these people. And it's work to follow even one who's easy to follow like Moses. Because this is one big story of work. You see, Joshua and the nation of Israel, once they go into the promised land, the land of rest, what do you see them doing? Working the conquest. They have to conquer. There's work to do, even in rest. Once they're in the promised land, you see work all over the place. You see Solomon building the temple. Work. If you stick around long enough, later you see the temple destroyed, and then you see Ezra rebuilding the temple. And then if you pay attention even longer, Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall. This is one big story of work. It made me think about where we started this little series on rest back studying the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20 where the, 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 the law is given, the specifics on the Sabbath. I realized, wait a second, embedded within that, that command to recognize and observe the Sabbath is the command to do all your work in six days. It's an implied part of the command. Work Work six days and then observe the Sabbath is part of the command. 
We were made for it from the very beginning. And it didn't end when Christ came. Let me show you this. Turn to Luke chapter 9. There's the potential to think that when Christ came, the work was over. Now, the work changed, and we're going to talk about that next week especially. But I want you to see a few things first this week. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Beginning in verse, where am I beginning? 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another, he said, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to them these words, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Here the language of following is the language of work. We don't have to think long to imagine what's involved. What do you do with a plow? It might make a nice yard ornament, but a plow's made for something. And a plow's made for work, and what he's implying here is that following me will be work. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his own cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Turn over to chapter 11. As you're turning there, I'm going to share another passage with you regarding this cross thing. A few chapters later in the same book, Jesus says sort of the same message. In chapter 16, verse 24. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. As I'm thinking about the language of the Gospels, if we're considering this language or this theology of work, I'm seeing language here in the Gospels, this side of Christ's birth, at least at this point, that seemed to imply that work is still going on. No one who puts their hand to the plow, or you have to put your hand to the plow without looking back to follow me. That sort of concept, work, 
And then here, take up your cross, implying that following is not only work, it's extreme work. And here's the word. This word, I don't know if you realize, was made up as a word to capture the agony of the cross. The work that's implied here by taking up your cross and following me is excruciating work. Break that word down. You think about it. Excruciating work. You might be selective and choosy about how you use that word in the future considering where it came from. The work that he's implying here in followers who take up their cross and deny ourselves to follow him is he's implying that not only is it work, it is excruciating work. Matthew chapter 11, I asked you to turn there. Look at verse, I'm going to start in verse 25. No, I'm going to start in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Great verse, one that we've considered together as a people. Absolutely true. One verse is absolutely true. It doesn't reveal the truth completely. Keep reading. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Still a message of rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This passage is hinting at how things are going to be different through Christ's work. They're going to be lighter. They're going to be easier in some ways, but yet there is still a yoke. We're not talking about egg yolks here. We're talking about the thing that oxen wore often in twos, a nice image. Very seldom did an oxen work by himself. Often in twos, this yoke that sort of yoked them together, that yoked them to the one who's using them and putting them to work. Jesus is saying, take my yoke. It's going to be light. It's going to be easy. But it's still work. It's still a yoke. Now, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're doing a little sampling here on this theology of work. We've grabbed some Old Testament realities from, very, the, from the very beginning. Obviously, the creative work. What God has ordained for man. We've grabbed some images. Noah, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Israel, the whole nation. Moses, Joshua, Solomon, Ezra, Nehemiah. We've grabbed some pictures here that Christ has used from the Gospels. Now, let me show you what my job is. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is speaking of Christ. He gave gifts to men. Now, you may not think of this, what you're about to hear, as a gift, but it is a gift. We're going to read verse 9 just because it's there, but I'm going to focus primarily on verse 11. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And in verse 11, and he gave the gifts that he gave to men are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers told you, you may not be really excited about that. You may not think about that as a gift. But according to this passage, I am actually a gift. The other elders are gifts given to this church for something. Listen to what we're given to the church for. To equip the saints for work. 
to equip the saints for work, specifically the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may long, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, if the, if the pastor and teacher is doing his job, this people can be built up to a people that are speaking the truth in love, and we grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This, my whole job is to do what this passage is saying here. I confessed to Scott earlier this week of this three-part series of sermons that I told you they're just so tied together that I hesitated to even preach them separately that my least favorite to, pre to preach was this one this Sunday. Next week, is, is that's, that's like the big glass of lemonade for me. But I'm realizing, I'm convicted as I'm reading this here, first of all, I'm convicted for one thing, reason, to realize that work, every day that, that God works, he says, it's good. Why would I be reluctant to preach to God's people about work when God himself says it's good? And why would I be reluctant to preach to God's people about the work when that's what I'm called to do? That's why I'm here is to equip you for work. That's what God has called me to do in this church. So I can't understand. I'm just made of the same stuff you are and I get off base and off balance and I need these sort of vegetable Sundays I need these sort of midweek Sundays if we want to use the, the metaphor of continuing through the week to get us to those Sunday glasses of cool water, those Sabbath sermons. This is not a Sabbath sermon. This is a hump day sermon. But it's one that we need to press on through in order to really enjoy the Sabbath. That's one that I need to be reminded of. I'm sort of apologetic about preaching on work and then I'm realizing that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm equipping you for that. I'm equipping you for this thing that God made man to do. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Since we've been camped out in Hebrews, you know, frankly, I could spend the next few weeks unpacking epistle letters teaching on work. All you have to do is start looking for verbs. They're all over the place. All verbs that have to do with living in a manner worthy of the gospel. The verbs are all over our New Testament. So I could spend the next weeks doing that. But instead, since we've spent weeks together in Hebrews, I thought I would just grab some of those verbs. I'm not going to spend a lot of time preaching on them. But I just want to call them to mind, realizing that they all involve effort. That they all involve work. Some of those things that we've grabbed in these past few weeks and months. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. Therefore because of Christ is who he says he is. Because, therefore because of who he is. We must pay much closer attention. That's work. Paying close attention is work. Look at chapter 3 verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. 
the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider that verb doesn't, may not sound like much of a, a verb, like it's very much work, but if you have walked with Crosspoint for any period of time, you know that considering Jesus, we spent like three months on that one verse. Because it's work to properly consider Jesus. We're going to do it for all of eternity. That's how much there is to consider there. It's not just have a little notion considering a little dude that looks like Michael Bolton in your head, in your mind's eye, seeing him walking around being nice to people. Properly, biblically exposing who Christ is and considering who he is, is work. It's work to pay close attention. It's work to consider. A few verses later in, verse, in chapter 12 or chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The verb there that's work is to take care. That's work. The next verse, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Exhort is work. Exhortation is work. To think over the course of the week as small group shepherds or to think over the course of the week as a shepherd of a home or as a mom who's raising kids and trying to teach kids from from day to day. To think about, I want to exhort them and build them up for things that I see in them that are praiseworthy, that are commendable, that are lovely. That takes work and effort. That's work. Exhorting you when I see things in you that are commendable. If I'm just self-absorbed, I'm going to miss all that. And I'm going to fail to do that work that I'm called to do. Chapter 4, verse 1. Here's another verb. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should have failed to reach it. Fearing is work. And then the centerpiece verb of the entire morning in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us therefore strive to make it through the week so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience and not make it to the Sabbath. Strive. It's a verb. And think of the verb. Strive. We're made for work. And consistently throughout this book and this Bible and this story, it is one big story of work. And while this durable promise of rest still stands, the Hebrews preacher is encouraging this people, as I'm encouraging this morning, this people, as we consider a theology of work, to don't quit shy of it. Don't quit shy of real rest. And know something in just knowing, continuing is work. Continuing is work. Just knowing that, there's something to that. Continuing is work. Now, I'm going to spend the next few minutes showing you two things about this work. First, what kind of work are we to continue in? And secondly, what is the nature of that work? First, what kind of work are we to continue in? If we're paying attention to Hebrews chapter 4, we have to acknowledge right off the bat the work that he's encouraging here is to continue via listening. 
The nature of the work we'll deal with in a minute. But what the work is specifically, first and foremost, before we even consider anything else, we have to consider that it is work to listen. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to fail to reach it. For good news preaching came to them or came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with the hearers. It's work to listen. The how-to of continuing is listening and we must reckon with the reality that it's work to listen. There's some Sundays, you know, I was using the metaphor, using the Hebrews metaphor, some Sundays that are midweek sermons, you know, hump day sort of sermons like this. They're vegetables to the diet, you know, the broccoli. Okay, but you need it. You may not like it, but you need it. And then there are those, those Sabbath sort of sermons that are like a breath of cool you know, a breath of fresh air, a drink of cool water, lemonade. Let me tell you, all day long, the ones that are easier and funner to preach are the lemonade ones. Sugar stick sermons. You need them. I mean, we need those sort of sermons. But we don't really appreciate those sort of sermons without the midweek sermons. And this being one of those midweek sermons, I know that it takes work to listen to a sermon like this. It takes work to preach a sermon like this. I can see in your faces effort where you're like, okay, I need to, re, I need to reorient. I've started, I start thinking about tacos and lunch and I start thinking about cutting the grass this afternoon or, or you know, these things I want to do or I start thinking about my kid. You know, I, have to, I see you. I, I'm not invisible. You know, you're not invisible. Like the guy that's driving the car thinks nobody sees him picking his nose. I'm invisible in my car. You're not invisible out there. I can actually see your faces. By design, this is like preaching almost in a round where I can see every face. So I can see when you're daydreaming and I can see when you're like, okay, I'm having to work at this this morning. That's okay. Because listening is work. It's funny, I was telling Christy about this. I've observed over the course of the last 10 years as families have come, joined, walked with us over a period of time, that oftentimes when a family comes for the first time or the first of a few times, if they stick around, there's sort of a honeymoon period to listening. Like, hey, I haven't heard this guy before. And, you know, he's not like anybody I've heard before. So he's kind of interesting. And there's sort of a, and I'm not saying that I'm interesting. I'm saying just initially. <laughs> it doesn't last long. But there's a honeymoon period. Like, I hadn't, he, maybe he talks funny or, you know, he's, he's goofy or something. I don't know, he, weird sayings or something. Uh, makes up words. 11% of people make up words, so that's okay. So he's easy to listen to maybe initially, but it's a honeymoon period. And I've watched faces of people that are in that honeymoon period where like rapt attentiveness, like flies are going in their mouth and flying back out. Uh, Wrapped. But that wears off. Almost without fail, with everybody except my wife. My wife pays attention every week just because she loves me. That wears off, and then once that wears off, then you really find out who the real listeners are. Who are listening beyond the method of delivery to the content. And then you see who's going to really work at it. Because listening is work. I was thinking it's sort of like eating right. It takes, those of you that really want to eat right, 
If you really want to have a good, healthy, well-balanced diet, it takes a lot of work. You're like in Brookshire's or um, Walmart. The Aikens are here. So you're in Brookshire's all the time. <laughs> Always Brookshire's. Yes. That's where I go. I'm mm, Brookshire's. <laughs> it's, it's my people right there. Brookshire's. <laughs> you're in there every day getting more vegetables because you're like, man, this stuff spoils. Or, you know, it's, or I ate it, you know. And you need more fresh stuff. It takes more effort than driving through the drive-thru at Taco Bell. Taco Bell tastes good. I mean, it really doesn't after you've eaten some of the other stuff for a while. But then, it, you know, for the most part, it, it's satisfying, but it's not nutritionally going to provide you anything compared to something that took a little more work. And I think the same is true of listening. Man, listening is hard work. But if you're listening to things that are vegetables, to broccoli, to dessert, you're listening to a well-balanced diet. It's going to take effort. It's going to take planning. It's going to take preparation. And there will be one Sunday or another, maybe multiple Sundays a month, where one thing or another is going to come up. It's going to feel like, you, you, man, I got a good excuse to not go listen this morning. The devil is busy. Here in the Hebrews book, in the same book, 2,000 years old, he's saying, man, it, people have already made a habit of doing that, of not gathering corporately. So there's nothing new under the sun. If you think you have some new temptations there that they didn't experience, they might take a different form, but it's not new to have temptations to keep you from listening. Because listening's work. Especially at Crosspoint, because the sermon's like an hour long. I get that. I grew up in a church where the sermon was 20 minutes, and if it was longer than that, then the deacons in the back were getting up, and they were huffing so loud that the preacher had to end. I remember spending the 20 minutes sitting and drawing in the velvet on the seat. You could draw things and then erase them. In the velvet on the seat. Those of you know I'm talking about a pew. You know that velvet I'm talking about? Mm -mm. For exactly 20 minutes and then we're home. Made it through another week. My Bible would go right back in the back shelf of the car where it'd be faded on one side where the little dead bugs were. Man, I know, I've been there. I get it. It's work to listen. It takes planning and prep and effort. And there's always the ever-available fast food version replacement. But it has low nutritional value. Listening is work. I'm going to build on this a little bit since we're here. Turn to James 1. James is the book right after Hebrews, so it's easy to find. Just turn over a few pages to James 1. We're still talking about the work of listening, but now we're sort of moving in the direction of hearing and heeding. Because you can listen and not do anything with it. That's very possible to do. You've got to know that. I mean, first of all, it's work to listen. But then it's work to actually do something with what you've heard. Listen to this in James 1, 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres. 
Bless you. Perseveres. I'm going to say that again because you, you blanked out my word. It's an important word. It's like a bleep. <laughs> and perseveres. Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. There's another picture of this on the next page. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? I'm going I'm to give you some thoughts about that word in a moment. Sometimes that word's thrown around like a dirty word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This work of listening here is sort of rounded out now to not only listening, but actually hearing it and heeding it. Being doers of what you're hearing and persevering in that doing and actually working your faith because real faith works. Now, I mentioned that some folks want to use the word works as sort of a dirty name, dirty word. Let me help you with that. If you've been around Crosspoint very long, you have likely heard phrases like resting in Christ. Uh, trusting in Christ as in, in, his, in his finished work. You've likely heard that sort of language. And I'm going to tell you what, that is absolutely true. And I would say those things to you again yet this morning. What I want to help you with is I want to help you with two different authors in our Bible and how they use the word work. Paul uses the word work and works a lot. James, we just read, used the word works a lot. This is a great example. You can do a word study in your Bible and make a real mess of things if you're not obedient to a process. Doing a word study in your Bible, you want to make sure that for the most part, you are studying a word within author and better yet, a word within author, within paragraph, or within thought. Because even within the same letter, one author may use one word two different ways. Paul does that often. But Paul and James use this word works totally different ways. If you're doing a word study, 
and you read Paul, then you might, you like Luther, who I love, might want to rip the book of James out of your Bible. Luther hated the book of James. He said it's a right strawy epistle. And the reason he hated it is because of this word works. What you have to realize is Paul is using the word works to mean the works of Jewish law like circumcision. He's writing to the Galatians where someone who's bewitched them saying it's grace plus circumcision to get saved. And he's saying that's anathema. Look that word up. That's anathema. That's vile. It's grace plus nothing. Grace alone. By faith alone. Yes, true, absolutely. Grab it, because Paul, what Paul is saying is right. When Paul uses the word works, he's using it as those who are thinking of it as a means to salvation, like circumcision, like the Judaizers. And there's lots to be said in the book of Romans and the book of Galatians where Paul is using that word in that way. Now, James is using it in a very different way. James is using the same word the word works as works of love. He's using his works as proof of genuine and living faith. His use of the word work is as a fruit of salvation, not a means to salvation. Those make all the difference in the world. His reference to works are a fruit of salvation. Paul is teaching on the way of justification. James is teaching on and describing the life of the justified. I'm going to say that again because that's so important. You, you really, really, really have to get that. If you're going to read more than one book in your Bible, if you're going to read Paul and you're going to read James, which you should read both because they're both true, you got to get that. Paul is teaching on the way of justification. James is describing the life of the justified. Paul is teaching on the way of justification. James is describing the life of the justified. If you only read one and not the other, if you only get this Sunday and not next, you're going to be off balance. If you only get next Sunday and not this Sunday, you're going to be lazy and unresponsive and lethargic. And someone asks you or expects you to do something, you're going to say, oh, no, grace. I'm saved by grace through faith. Get out of my face. If you only come this Sunday, you're going to be expecting, hey, let's go do some stuff. And if you miss out on what's said next week and what Paul said about works, you're going to be off balance. Understand what James is saying here. These works are works of love. They are fruit of salvation. He's describing the life of the justified. One of the ways, I'm going to give you a hook, a place to hook this thought. I think Aaron, he made an uh, announcement last week. A third or so of those in our church family, kids, are adopted. A third, I think. Some of you are adopted too, adults. Are some of you adopted? We have that imagery in front of us. Let's grab that imagery and understand how this works. If you want to understand where work fits in, use the image of adoption. Because you know that an adopted child is not adopted because they've done any special work. He didn't complete some sort of study or program 
and earn some sort of certification where an adoptive parent can then go, ha ha, here's a certified kid here. Yes, this one has jumped through the proper hoops. They have the proper, you know, intellect or, you know, whatever. Short twitch, fast twitch muscle fibers where they will be a superior athlete. So I will adopt this one, yes. And then some fitness testing. You don't do that. Man, that child hasn't done anything. Some of you adopted the child before the child was born or you started the process of adoption before the child was born. That's a beautiful picture of where work fits in. You adopt that child. That child becomes part of your family and work does not keep them in the family either. They don't have to work to maintain their place in the family. That child has taken your name. But you know what? There are things that you do as family members in your home that you're expecting an adopted child to do just like a biological child, right? Chores. Things that you do as a family. That because that child bears your name, that child is going to step up and work. That's fruit of adoption, not means to adoption. And work is very appropriate as an adopted child. And we must not quit working for Saturday is coming. Fit it into the Hebrews appeal. Hebrews church, don't quit working for Saturday is coming. Rest later. Rest later. Now, the second thing and where we're going to end this morning, I'm going to deal with the nature of the work. The nature of the work. Turn to Genesis chapter 5. You've gone through about 90% of the message this morning, so you're almost at the finish line. You're almost at the Sabbath rest of the sermon. We're in Friday evening. Well, since Sabbath started on Friday at dusk, we're at Friday noon. Okay? So hang in there for the afternoon, Friday afternoon, because there's going to be rest in store. If the nature of our rest in store, our Sabbath is to be informed by His Sabbath, then the nature of our work that we're to be about for that six out of seven days, figuratively, is to be informed by His work. Our work is to be like His work. I read, not incomplete, I didn't read all the verses through the creation week, but I read enough of it there for you to see and remember at this point, hopefully, the nature of his work was creative every single day. He's creative. And if you remember our first sermon on Sabbath, what you do on the Sabbath is you remember and enjoy his creation. That's the Exodus teaching. And then when it's brought back up in Deuteronomy, he added in the element that you're supposed to remember and enjoy his deliverance. So you're enjoying his creation and you're enjoying... His deliverance. Now, what does Noah have to do with this? Listen to this passage. Noah, in Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and he called his name Noah, saying, okay, there's all these people born, there's all these people given names, and there's some details provided about Noah. Listen to what he says. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work. 
and from the painful toil of our hands. Thinking about that, man, how is he going to br bring relief from their work? The way that Noah is going to build and bring relief from their work is he himself is going to work. He's going to work for 75 years doing what was likely one of the most, or appeared to be, one of the most futile, foolish things the world at that point had ever known. What are you building, Noah? 75 years he was likely heckled, joked about. How ridiculous is that? What even is that? A weird-shaped house? They haven't needed a boat before then, at least that we know of. And what, what are you building there, Noah? And what, what are you doing? Noah's work, though, is a delivering work, and it's a creative work. As he loads up these critters two by two, and as God destroys the earth, and as God recreates the earth, Noah's work of tending to these two-by-two two critters and then distributing them from off the ship or the boat afterwards and then sending his family, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the, the three stooges, and their families off of the ship. It's a recreative work. So it's a delivering work and it's a recreative work and rest is provided through the work because a remnant of all humanity is going to be delivered through that work. Rest comes through his work. His work is creative, and his work is delivering. That's why when he's named here, they say this about him, that he's going to bring rest, finally, to all our work, because his work is creative and delivering. It's hard, likely. I can imagine 75 years of building something. Seemingly futile at times. Don't you imagine there are times where Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth are sitting hammering on that thing where they're thinking, man, what are we doing? This. <laughs> Did we hear him right? <laughs> God, can you remind us what we're doing here? Times where the work that he was called to do must have been times that felt futile. Guarantee there were times that were tiring. There were times it must have felt ridiculous when he's being heckled and he's building something the world up to this point had never needed. Yet it is a creative work because we see what happened through it and it's the delivering work because we see what happened through it. Now, where we're going to end this morning is 2 Corinthians 4. I want you to see this. Turn there. 2 Corinthians 4. You're going to understand what Noah has to do with anything here. He's an example in some ways of our work. If God's work informs our work, maybe Noah's work informs our work. And maybe we can find a clue here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I told you there's this whole new layer opened up now that we're considering rest in terms of God's rest. We're considering work in terms of God's work. In terms of the creation week, there's this whole new set of eyes that we have on familiar passages. This being a familiar passage to me. I, as I'm studying this week, I thought about this passage. Man, what, what a cool passage here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to this, verse 6. 
I've read this passage a hundred times. I think Scott's preached on it, or I have, or both of us have. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the same God on week, on, on first week of creation, creation week, day one, says, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God that said, let there be light, said, let there be Shelley. Same God said, let there be Clint. And I don't mean just as in creating Shelley or Clint. But I mean calling you from death to life. Lazarus, come forth. The same God that said, let there be light, said, Lazarus, come forth. Man, that's awesome. Just consider that, how awesome that is. This recreative work. We are a new creation. Connect some of the dots. We are a new creation for those who have been born again. Because he's called us from death to life. The same God that spoke light into darkness. Now, I set you up for something. Look at the verse right in front of that. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read them together because you've got to get this. This is so beautiful. For what we proclaim, Corinthian church, cross point, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is connected there, if you're really paying attention to, to this, through now this creative week, Examining it as a creative work, understanding and making sense of our work in light of God's work. What you're realizing there is our work of proclaiming Christ, verse 5, is like saying, let there be light. God is saying, let there be light through you with dudes that you work with at the pharmaceutical company. With the people at the, the, the court that you work at. It, it, in your cubicle, in your workspace. When you speak some true things about God. When you enjoy God out loud on two wheels, Jerry. When we're out engaging people in true things about God and putting Him on display. We are proclaiming Christ and we are speaking light into darkness. It's a creative work. And what a cool thing. When you connect that thought to what he's encouraging the Hebrews church to do in Rome, he's saying, y'all keep about the work of listening and hearing and heeding and proclaiming. Because others are going to come to know me through your out loud worship. Moms, when you sit with your kid and feel like Noah in year 50, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I even doing? When you're sitting here thinking, man, you're speaking light into little dark corners. It's a creative work. And it's a delivering work. You're a Noah in that moment. Man, that gives me goosebumps. Does that give you some meaning? You want some meaning in this next week of 2013? What a wonderful work we have in front of us or we are in about a creative work, about a delivering work, speaking 
light in the darkness. Man, that's the nature of our work. Okay, it's probably like Noah's going to feel hard. It's probably like Noah's going to feel futile sometimes. It's probably like Noah's going to be tiring. It might even feel ridiculous. But we know the rest of the story. We kept reading. We saw they left the ark two by two. We saw that it was the hope of the world. We saw that Noah was a herald of righteousness and God used that for his own glory. And he put the nature of our Savior on display through that work. Man, that should give us some hope to not quit on Wednesday. To not quit, moms, in year 60 on the ark. Tap, tap, tap. To press on. Keep after it because we're about a creative, delivering work. But it's work. Now, we're going to take the supper. I want to show you something about the supper. We're going to distribute the elements, but I want to share this with you before we actually distribute the elements. The supper that we take each week has so many different applications, so many different things that we see each week that help us make sense of the sermon. As I was preparing this sermon this week and I was thinking about how work leads to rest, real work, creative delivering work, good six days full throttle work leads to real wholehearted hearty rest. And I realized in some ways that the elements, the sacramental elements themselves, spell that on my Bible, put that on display. Think of all that goes in to bread. We don't have to think of it very often because we can go to Brookshire's or Walmart and get it in two seconds. This was likely a connection that they would have made and if we can slow down to three miles an hour just for a few minutes, maybe we can think about all that goes into making bread. All the work involved with making bread, the plowing, the sowing, the tending, the watering, the harvest, the gleaning, the winnowing, grinding, kneading, baking, before we ever put it in our mouth. And that's just the bread. This is grape juice, so that doesn't have, likely doesn't have near the process of real wine. But if it was real wine, think that all goes into, all that goes into making a really good wine. Years and years worth of work. Dressing the vines genetic connections between different types of vines pressing those vines vintaging the grapes all that goes into making a good wine all that goes into making a good bread 
Those are illustrative of the work that he has done for us. For before he ever showed up in Bethlehem, there were thousands of years worth of story that were all leaning in that direction, all working toward that moment. Galatians 4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son at just the right moment because enough story had been shared and it was time. Lots of work was done before he ever even showed up. But then there's work in leaving the Father's right hand and taking on flesh. And he showed up. He showed up in a body prepared through the conception by the Holy Spirit. And he prepared that body to be broken through trial, through temptation, through teaching, through preaching, through calling through building and then his blood was shed through suffering another excruciating work all so that we could take and eat and drink and rest we rest because of his work these elements are a visual aid all that's gone into this before I ever take and eat all that's gone into this if it were real wine before I ever take and drink. Beautiful imagery of all that's gone into this before we as a people take and eat. Christ's work, sufficient and finished. Let's distribute the elements. Thousands of years of necessary story. A body prepared through conception by the Holy Spirit trial and temptation by Satan yet absolute sinlessness teaching preaching calling building and then blood shed through suffering through an excruciating work and the yield a satisfying meal a satisfying meal rest at his table take and eat take and drink may we together work as worship as adopted heirs till our Sabbath comes or Christ returns fueled by enjoyment of his finished work. Let's continue in song. Lord, as we worship you, it is a privilege, it's always such a privilege to know these truths, to hang on to them, to work in them, to rest in them. Lord, we pray that you would continue to guide us as you see the ministries in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a seat and turn your attention to the screen for
Um, Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Um, for me, that calling to continually teach your children diligently in all that you do can be overwhelming and something that often gets put maybe at the end of the list when it should be in the forefront of all that we do. So uh, because of that and because it's summer's coming around and we may have some more time as to spend as families together, uh, maybe vacations, you're going on a road trip, um, you're going to be in the car a lot with your kiddos or at home or um, anyway, because of that, Annie's put together this um, family summer resource booklet. Um, basically, all it is is just a list of some really awesome ideas and things you can do to help keep the word in your daily conversation. There's um, ideas for things like scripture memory. There is uh, there's a summer reading plan for the book of John for like beginning readers and advanced readers, that's things that you can go through as a family. Um, also in the beginning of this is a calendar um, that has um, summer clubs, uh, youth camp. Uh, we've got a couple of family fellowship night at the parks scheduled and our summer, um, our swim night, we've got that scheduled as well. It's all in here. You can put that on your calendars. Um, and these are going to be out here on the information table in the lobby of this building. So grab one on your way out. It's really simple, really easy ideas. It's not something that's going to take a long time to read or go through. So um, grab one on your way out. We'll also send them out um, email in the next day or two. We'll, we'll get it, a digital copy as well. And let's see if there's anything else. Oh, um, like I said, it's a real simple, it's just a quick sampling of some ideas. So if you need more than this book has, let um, Annie or me know, and we will point you to all kinds of resources that we have available. So that's all I have. All right. I thought I'd leave you with one more hook before we left this morning, uh, kind of a visual. You know, sermon on work, um, I didn't get the sense from y'all this morning that this was like, oh, this is drudgery. Y'all y'all did the work this morning, and this is not, you know, we're not characterized as a people that are opposed to this sort of thought. But I, I want to give you this image as you go. There's, I, there's something that I don't know is a cultural thing or what, but maybe it's the product of Aladdin or something like that, but we feel like real love, if it's real love, it's just, we just kind of be swept away. And we're kind of swept up, and you, know, you fall into it. You know, the same thing of the language that we use of love and relationships, we like the thought of something that is just almost effortless. But those that have been married for any period of time know that while that may have been the beginnings, that, and there might be windows of that from time to time, that in large part, marriage, real marriage is not characterized by effortlessness. Not a good one. I mean, if you want a guarantee of a lame, mediocre marriage, then just treat it as effortless. Because you can just exist together and not divorce 
You could just exist and maybe survive each other till you die. But really, a good marriage, it takes work. And the work doesn't somehow make it feel like it's loveless. In fact, love compels you to work. Love fuels the work. So you want to know where work fits in to this relationship with our, our divine husband? Love compels us. How could we not? It's, it's out of response to the kind of husband that he is to us. So if you need a hook for that, where does this work thing fit in? I, I'm thankful that you guys received this. I could tell that you're very attentive and receptive this morning. But in far, as far as a place to carry it, you know, a place to put it, think about good marriages. Think about good worship. A good marriage takes work. Any, ask anybody that's been married for a period of time that you admire their marriage, you want to talk about, how did you guys get here? They're probably going to tell you it took a lot of work. And it takes a lot of work. And it's good work. Just like he said every day. And it was good. Year 10, and it was good. Decade 2, and it was good. You know? Let, that, let those images travel. Connect those dots. Let's connect them to worship. All right, let's stand. I'll just miss you. Now, if you know of somebody that wasn't here this morning and you see them this week, let them know they're going to be really off balance. They're going to be limping if they only get next week. But that we have it online where they can go listen to it this week to be ready for Sunday. And again, the disclaimer, you need next week as well. If you travel, be all you can be. But engage this so you're not pulling to the right. All right, let me pray. God, we are thankful that this Sunday is not all of the story. I'm thankful that you have called us to be part of work that is, in fact, good. And I'm thankful that ultimately you have given us someone that's so much better than Noah, that's given us true rest from our work. We enjoy him, Lord, as we go out the door today being about a responding work as adopted heirs, responding to this great, great salvation that you have called us to. We give this week to you as an offering. I pray that we will be hearers and doers. pray that we will respond and walk in and work out the faith that you have given us and fostered in us. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray.